Welcome to this second episode of Europe Chats with Jim Claus. Jim is TEPSA Secretary-General and former Director-General at the General Secretariat of the Council of the European Union. In Europe Chats, we want to discover what the EU is, what it is not, how it functions, who has the say and what it can do better. In the last episode, we explored the roots of the European Union and its competencies. Today, we ask, what is the common European interest? Who formulates it and how? Jim, you were helping to prepare summits of EU leaders for the past two decades. How would you define the common European interest? And by comparison, what does the national interest mean? Miriam, I would maybe start with the national interest first. From time to time, you hear accusations against national leaders for defending the national interest. I have always been surprised by this, because I have always thought that someone in a particular country is being elected to defend the interests of that country. So, because otherwise, I don't think he or she will be in power for a very long time. So I refuse to make this absolute distinction between good European interests and bad national interests. The real question for me is not about whether one should or not defend the national interest. The question for me is how we should do this. And if you look back at history, in the first half of the 20th century, the way national interests were being defended was in a very narrow and nationalistic way to the detriment of the interests of the others. The European integration was a way of changing this and of working together jointly to define a common interest based on the varying interests of the uh, founding member states. Uh, this is a way of pooling resources and of sharing sovereignty, which has worked quite well, actually, over the last uh, 60 years or so. If I rephrase that, the common European interest is born from the intelligent pursuit of various national interests. In what ways did the founding member states defend their national interests in the 1950s? Uh, yes, I like very much the way you put this. I would simply add that this common interest is something which is not static. It evolves over time. For instance, over the years, the member countries have decided to transfer more competences to the European level because they think it's easier to solve the problems there. But coming back to your question about the founding members, none of them gave up defending national interests. Simply, you have to remember what were the national interests at the time. For the Germans, it was to overcome the events of the Nazi past and to rejoin the family of nations. For the Italians, it was a bit similar. For the French, it was a way to regain prestige and power after the terrible defeat of 1940. For the Benelux countries, it was to avoid being trampled over each time the others fought a war and to have a say on their own destiny. And you can apply the same logic to all the countries which later joined the European Union. So European integration offered a way to realize those objectives uh, by pursuing them jointly uh, and in a win-win situation. So the common European interest arises from the joint pursuit of national interests. It is not an abstract and idealistic uh, 
uh, notion which is somehow floating in outer space. And this suggests that a European interest is an aggregation of national interests. It's a win-win combination. But in a union of 27, does everyone have to be a winner at all times on every topic? You are absolutely right. If we are in a situation where in any given moment each member country wants to win 100% of the argument, uh, the system will simply break down. Uh, European integration is built on mutual re respect and the recognition of the interests of the other side. So before saying no to a proposal, a member country has to ask a number of questions. Is this so important for my national interest? Uh, is it better to block a deal or is it better to make a compromise uh, so that the others can also agree with this? And can we look at a bigger interest? Positions also involve, if you look at the uh, recovery uh, program, uh, which was recently adopted, at the outset there were quite a few delegations who were adamantly opposed to it because they thought it was bad for them and the union. But then their position evolved and in the end they could all sign up to this deal. Also because they got in the course of the negotiations some reassurances about the things which worried them. You also have to look at the broader picture. You may lose out on one or the other issue, but then you'll win the next one. And when you're in trouble, the others will help you. Now, it's interesting there to look, for instance, at the behavior of the French and the Germans on the one side and the British on the other. The French and the Germans have decided politically that they want across the board to work together and find compromises. And that's what they do. The British have a very different way of looking at things. They would take each issue and then look at it and analyze it and say, is this in our interest or not? If not, we vote against it. This may be rational in a way, but it does not allow you to construct a lasting alliance the way the Franco-German alliance works. You mentioned mutual respect, listening, and the art of making good calculations. How else do member states manage to reconcile their diverging national interests? And what roles do EU institutions play in this? Institutions are very important. And the Council was created for the member countries to work on common decisions uh, and agree. This is the art of the compromise, which is so important in our system. Now, if there's one thing I've learned in my long European career, it is that you can have, on an important issue, two diametrically opposed views, and both are right. I always use the example of posted workers, where you, know, you can have a Polish enterprise sending their workers to France or Luxembourg to do a certain project. The Luxembourgers and the French tend to think that this could undermine their social security system. And in a way, they're right. At the same time, from the Polish perspective, things look quite different, because they were asked to adopt 70,000 pages of legislation to join the European Union. And the promise was, once you've done that, you are in the internal market, you benefit from it. And then someone turns around and said, oh yeah, but here you have a competitive advantage. That doesn't work. So what do you do? You have to sit together and find a compromise. And that's what we did on this particular file. 
Then there is an important aspect, which is that the member states here and the Council are being helped by the Commission. The Commission was created to uh, propose ways of reaching common objectives, to defend the common interests. That is what the European uh, Commission is about. And that is why the Commission always has to be about 10 steps ahead of the Council and to pull the Council and the Member States towards European solutions. Not 100 steps, because if they do that, they lose contact and nothing happens anymore. The European Parliament is also important because the directly elected European Parliament allows the citizens to be represented and to be heard, not only through the filter of their own governments working in the Council, but also via the people they directly elect to the European Parliament. Now, the treaties fix the rules of the game, and you need that absolutely, like you need constitutions in a national democracy. But that is not enough to make the system function. You also need some unwritten rules. You need a certain code of behavior. I recently read a fascinating book by two uh, Harvard professors, uh, Levitsky and Ziblatt, who wrote a book about how democracies die. And their main point in this book is to say that there are certain unwritten rules which you need to make the system work. And they talk about two of those rules. They call the first one uh, mutual toleration, I would say mutual tolerance, and the second one is institutional forbearance. Institutional forbearance means that you do not use all the powers which you legally have to score points and to advance. So uh, those are exactly the kind of rules which we need in the European Union uh, to make it function. I will say at the end that on the whole, in my experience, for instance, of the European Council, that our leaders overall show tolerance and forbearance. And I think it's a very good thing. But what if the delegations do not play the game? What happens when unwritten rules are not respected? As I said before, I'm not shocked when people defend national interests, particularly when they think they're really very important. I can maybe give you a historical example of this. In 1966, in order to uh, emerge from the crisis of the empty chair, which I mentioned last time, uh, there was a compromise being done in Luxembourg, uh, Luxembourg so-called compromise about voting. It was actually an agreement to disagree. What happened was that the French wanted to the others to accept that if someone invokes a vital interest, that you would not proceed to the vote, even if you could do so legally. The others saw the point to some extent, but they never accepted that you would exclude voting. This was this kind of understanding. But de facto, for the next 15 years, uh, there were no votes when someone invoked the vital interest. What then happened is that in a situation like that, people are tempted to abuse the system, to invoke a vital interest when there isn't a vital interest. And it happened in 1987 for the first time that a country, Britain, invoked a national interest on the fixing of the prices of milk and beef. And there the others said, we're very sorry, that is not serious. So they just outvoted the uh, British on this one. And this was, in a way, the beginning of the end of this famous uh, Luxembourg Compromise. 
it was a healthy reaction to save the system. You have the same in the American system with filibuster, which is a way in the Senate to protect the minority. But if you apply it across the board, it's gridlock. And you see a lot of this in America. In our system, it happens uh, frequently also that some member countries who uh, are being put under pressure in the Council, they say, we have to discuss this politically at the level of the European Council. Now, we all know the European Council functions by consensus. So this is a way of avoiding being minorized by a vote. It is legitimate in some cases if you, know, you have such important issues like the multi-annual financial framework, where anyway the decision in the Council is by unanimity. But it's also, for instance, the climate change area where this happens from time to time. And I think it is legitimate. The problem is if you start to do this systematically, then you pervert the system and you undermine the treaty which does foresee in those areas, which does foresee qualified majority voting. So that is the kind of uh, uh, common sense you have to apply to all of this. So far we have assumed that there are obvious European issues on which national positions may clash, but the member states and the European institutions will try to find a compromise. Now, let me give you a few examples where it looks as though uh, a minority of EU member states try to evacuate a topic from the European debate because they prefer to deal with it at the national level. Northern uh, European countries seeking to minimize financial risk sharing within the Eurozone, or Visegrad countries trying to avoid dealing with the asylum seekers coming at the borders of the southern member states, or Germany building the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia without caring it's about its geostrategic implications and about the interests of the eastern member states. How do you see this? Those are quite different cases. And I think the reality is slightly more complicated than what you seem to imply. Firstly, if I talk about the Greek and the other rescue packages, it is obvious that if you were in the situation like Greece, no longer able to participate in the financial markets, that it was clear that you needed solidarity, you needed it quickly. That's entirely understandable. But on the other hand, of course, the net payers were worried about moral hazard. They were worried about the fact that some countries had, they thought, behaved irresponsibly in terms of deficits, and that they wanted to be bailed out against the rules of the treaty. So uh, that was the starting uh, position. Uh, and there was a Slovak prime minister at the time, Mrs. Radiceva, who was in a very difficult position, because the majority of the Slovak people considered that it was not right that they should finance a rescue package for countries which had double the pension rate of the pension rates in Slovakia. Mrs. Radiceva decided that she had to support the deal. It was in the overall good and eventually also for Slovakia. She paid a price for this because she lost her premiership as a result. So you see that it's uh, sometimes complicated. I would add here that uh, in the COVID crisis, you've seen a quicker reaction by the EU uh, and a very substantial one because everybody, including the net payers, had evolved and understood and drawn the lessons from what happened before. Then let me say a quick word about migration. It's a very sensitive issue. 
There again, uh, if you're a country like Germany or Sweden, which takes on lots of asylum seekers, the idea of solidarity is that the others do something about this and also share in this. But on the other side, for Hungarians and Poles, the situation looked a bit different. They were afraid that if you did this, that you would create a pull factor and have more and more migrants. And secondly, they also have a strong reticence in their societies, for historical reasons, about immigration. So the two sides uh, were opposite. Now, at the time, on the proposal of the Commission, uh, there was a majority vote on migrants' quotas, where the Poles and the Hungarians were outvoted. In fact, uh, they were outvoted, but some others had similar ideas, but they didn't dare vote against the deal. I had considered at the time, and I still consider, that pushing this through by qualified majority voting was a political mistake. It divided Europe. It was never applied, even though the Court of Justice condoned the measures. And in fact, it was a measure which was inapplicable. And it divided Europe so much that it prevented us at the time from reforming the migration and asylum system. And we still haven't done so. Just because of this, I hope we'll do it shortly. The last example on the Nord Stream, I'll be very short about that. The primary decision here is for a national government, in this case, the German government. But of course, if it's clear that there are over, there are large European interests here, be it in terms of energy security, be it in terms of geostrategic uh, considerations, if you look at the way Russia treats the Ukraine, Ultimately, here, in my view, it is for the German government to uh, think about this and to do what is right. You show a lot of understanding for the behavior of EU member states. Is it the case that some issues are inherently divisive and hence common European interest is hard to find? If Germany does not have ambitions for EU's foreign policy, if Poland is reluctant to discuss climate, and if, if Luxembourg wouldn't like to move on taxation, is the European Union still relevant for tackling common challenges? Miriam, I would say that you have to look at things not in a static but in a dynamic way. Attitudes evolve, uh, opinions change, and common EU interests emerge over time. The three cases you mentioned are quite interesting because in each of those cases, the member country you mentioned has evolved quite a lot. You take Germany in foreign policy. Uh, already at the time of the Yugoslav crisis, the Germans became much more active and actually participated even in military action for the first time after the Second World War. Today, Mrs. Merkel is one of the staunchest defenders of a new partnership with Africa. Taking Poland and climate change. Uh, yes, Poland is very difficult on this. Why? Well, because they happen to have such a dependence on coal. So it's entirely natural that for them, going for uh, zero emissions is very complicated. The fact of the matter, though, is that in December last year, there was a deal. And the Polish signed up to a new uh, target for 2030, minus 55% compared to 40% before. And they also signed up to the overall carbon neutrality target for 2050. 
So they have evolved. And as far as Luxembourg is concerned, yes, Luxembourg has been very difficult about taxation. And of course, as you know, taxation underlies unanimity. The fact of the matter, though, is that a lot of progress has been made over the last years. And in terms of the uh, taxation of capital, we today have automatic exchange of information between our tax authorities. So there is evolution. And the debate and the discussion in Europe help to bring solutions, even when it looks completely impossible at the outset. Would you have any examples where the attitudes of member states are really short-sighted and have little to do with serious national interest? Unfortunately, I could give you a long list, but I'll just give you two examples, because of course this happens. Uh, member states, like human beings, are far from perfect. They sometimes fail to act and agree because of issues which, frankly, are not really their national interest. My first example is the external representation of the euro. We still, 20 years after the launch of the euro, have not drawn the conclusions from the fact that we have a single currency in terms of external representation. This leads to us being overrepresented in terms of numbers in bodies like the IMF or the G7, or the G20, but in reality underrepresented in terms of influence and power. Now, this is not a major interest of any of the member countries to do this. It is an interest, it's a question of status, and it's a question of the people who represent the national uh, authorities in those bodies. They want to continue being the only, being there, being present. So it's, it's not a, a, a key issue. The second example is geo-blocking. Um, I am really each time very angry, I must say, when I try to have a replay of a French TV program. And then when I try to do that, I get a message on my screen that you live in a country whose residents have no access to this content. It's completely absurd, to be very honest with you. The only people who don't seem to have any problem with using the full potential of our single market, are the American GAFAs. Let me ask you a question about use external policies. If the common European interest is a combination of national interests, and if foreign policy decisions can only be made by unanimity, does this not make the Union very weak in its external action? Can the Union aspire to be a powerful global actor if it can only make policies which are the lowest common denominator of the positions of the 27? It is true, Miriam, that in terms of foreign policy and for historical reasons, uh, we function intergovernmentally and mainly via consensus or, or, or unanimity. And this does limit our capacity to react, particularly in a crisis situation and to be very decisive. Um, the fact of the matter is that in the area of foreign policy and security, the uh, uh, national sovereignty concerns are higher than in other areas. I would, however, not say that because of this, we always have the lowest common denominator. In fact, since Maastricht, the European Union has developed a much more active and comprehensive uh, foreign policy and made progress even in the areas of security and defense. Today, 
for instance, uh, in this area, we have, contrary to what happened before, a vibrant dialogue with NATO, and the EU is doing uh, quite a lot on Russia, in spite of some diverse views among our member countries, which we have to recognize. Uh, we have shown a lot of unity in our reaction to what happened in Ukraine. Uh, we have held up the sanctions decided unanimously, and we have stuck to them. Uh, in 2019, the European Council adopted a major strategic agenda where the foreign policy part is very strong, assertive. You use terms like uh, reciprocity and all of that. And we have engaged in a search for strategic autonomy for the Union, which I think is absolutely vital for the next years. The other thing I'd like to say is traditional foreign policy is only a part of external relations. You have to look at the global picture. You would even have to have a look, I would say, at enlargement policy, which has been, in my view, a great success and has transformed the European landscape. Uh, we have created southern and eastern partnership policies, which allow us to help create stability and prosperity in the near abroad. In areas of development, we are the leading power in the world, certainly in terms of financing. And then don't forget trade. Uh, we are the biggest, by far, the biggest trading power in the world. Uh, we are also very influential because uh, we uh, can decide by qualified majority on the external aspects of internal policies, like internal market and energy and many others. Uh, so um, what we really need, maybe, is the political will to use the full potential of our resources, both our national resources and our uh, EU resources. But I really think that the Union has become an important global player. I want it to be a bit more important in view of China, which gets stronger and stronger, in view of the United States, which is to some extent evolving, in view of our difficult relationships with difficult neighbors like Russia and Turkey. So we have to go further. But it's not as though we haven't done anything and we are absolutely powerless. It's not true. How optimistic are you about the future ability of the 27 member states to identify their common European interest and then to act on it? What will be your conclusions at the end of this talk? First of all, I'd say that we've barely scratched the surface of a very important theme. And uh, I would very much be interested in what viewers think about this, if they have other questions or suggestions or comments. Uh, I would also be interested to have the think tank community deepen the analysis of this important uh, concept. Now, my conclusions uh, will be, uh, there will be five conclusions. The first one is that the European interest is not some abstract concept uh, that can be seen in isolation from national interests. The second point is that European integration has introduced a novel way of defending uh, the common European interest, uh, and by jointly uh, putting forward national interests. The third point is that the present state of the world and also the recurrent crises we are facing uh, make working together at the EU level even more important. And I think this is being increasingly uh, recognized. The first, fourth point is that uh, the European Union has over the past years shown more resilience than what people expected, I think and that all those sort of uh, the prophets of doom uh, who regularly 
seem to foresee the collapse, the imminent collapse of the Union, have always gotten it wrong. And they will still probably foresee, uh, foretell the collapse of the Union in 50 years' time from now. Uh, my last remark is that I remain optimistic because of this, but also because in more and more areas over the last years, the Europeans have come to the conclusion that it's better to do things together at the European level. You've seen it in the vaccine crisis, for instance, in the pandemic right now, uh, and probably we will beef up our cooperation on health matters in the coming years. So overall, uh, I'm fairly confident that uh, we have found a way of preserving our national interests but defending them better together. Thank you very much, Jim. And thank you all for having watched the second episode of Europe Chats with Jim Claus. If you liked it, if it intrigued you, or even if it annoyed you, please do like, comment, subscribe, and don't forget to send in your questions for Jim to answer in the next episode. In that episode, we will explore what does the COVID-19 and other crises have to say about the European Union. You can send in your questions via Twitter using the hashtag EuropeChat. See you next time. co-funded by the Europe for Citizens programme of the European Union. The European Commission's support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.